have future wager at 50 to 1. You do. I got another 25 to win. If I don't get the first leg warrant, I, I just walk home. I'm just straight out the door. I'm gone. Hello, listeners, and welcome to our three-unit series. In this episode, we catch up with iconic sports broadcaster Hamish McLaughlin. Hamish shares with us his love of horses as we unpack his journey from humble beginnings on the farm in South Australia to hosting Olympic Games, calling the AFL, and one-on-one interviews with the likes of Kobe Bryant. If you like first fours at Darwin, wholesome Auskick interviews, and sending the likes of James Blunt packing, then this is the yarn for you. Hamish McLaughlin, welcome along to the Two Units podcast. Thanks for having us in your crown penthouse suite this uh, Monday morning after the Brownlow medal. How are you? I'm good. Great to be on uh, the Two Units. It's been a lifetime of wanting and finally it's here. So Dave, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to be here with you, Hamish. And I know you're interviewing Paddy Coops last night after you won the brown though. I could see the look in your eyes. You're thinking, wrap it up, Paddy. I got the units tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Short, sharp. But I was actually thinking to myself, if if I said to 16-year-old Dave, the morning after the brown though, I'm in a crown suite. I'm with an AFL umpire. I'm with the host of the brown low medal. Yep. I'd say that sounds about right. Is this Charlie number two or three? <laughs> but life's taken a different path and we're here. Were you a footballer? As a junior, but How yeah, I, I wrapped him up. Oh, good enough. But I, I wrapped him up. I got injured, mate, and, and had to hang What's up the boots so, at a so young who would age. you compare yourself as a footballer to? Uh, Nathan Buckley, mate. Really? Just just get it on the outside and just slam it on the right boot. <laughs> or left with backs. Yeah, exactly. I feel like you've got to know Dave very yeah, yeah. well. This, this isn't mine, this is your life. But you've pinged the gates. Yeah, big yeah, time. But we're here to talk, discuss your your career in broadcasting. Well, it's probably not as exciting as your junior football career. <laughs> well, it actually isn't, but you've done a lot, mate. It's one of the most explosive CVs we've come across. And we're not going to be able to get through everything, but we'll do our best to, to, to get a There is a actually few good nothing yards. worse than talking about yourself. Is no, well, as soon as you asked me about me, I wanted to move it on. Depends yeah, who you are, I think, Hame, <laughs> yeah. as, uh, yeah. as demonstrated yeah. in the first minute and a half. All Footy talks about is the fact that he should get an invite to the Brown, though. He's flat as that he has The umpires but... not get votes by <laughs> default. Oh, we got. There's our, I saw Jacob Mollison. Yeah, our night. previous grand final umpires get an invite. So it was weird being in the uh, foyer this morning and a few players going, oh, how was your night? And I was, uh, yeah, yeah, I couldn't be bothered explaining why I was at Crown. So I just said it was a good one. But the reality is I was in bed at 8 p.m. I didn't even see, I didn't even see your fine self in action. Oh, we can replay. It. So, so, so when it's Tuesday, 10.06. When are the umpires? Monday, 10.06. And what did I say? Oh, yeah, because it's yeah, a – Yes, um, they'll find out about lunchtime today, today, the umpires. So, Are you in the running? I'm not, unfortunately. My, Have you been told you're not? Yes. When my, do you get told you're not? Uh, for me, about a month ago, uh, but depending. So there's only six guys left okay. that did the prelims. So three of them will be fortunate enough to represent our group. But okay. – Enough about that. Okay. We want to talk about you. You're exactly. trying. You're I've trying. You're trying to deflect. <laughs> I've and we hard. want to start from the early days, okay. Haim. And you grew up in South Australia. Three brothers. What was it like? What made little Haim tick? And was it always sports? Yeah, it was. So we. I'm from a small town called Mount Pleasant, about an hour out of Adelaide. Sheep farm. Uh, the uh, Mount Pleasant Primary School had, I think, forty or fifty kids in it. Two hundred and sixty kids in the town. So I've got an older brother, Gil. 
two younger brothers, Banjo and Will, and there's a bit of a gap between the fourth. He was an accident. Mum and Dad acknowledged that, but they <laughs> like him. But it was always sport for Gil and I. We're only two years apart. He's an August baby. I'm an August baby. Um, and I wanted to play football for Norwood or I wanted to play Davis Cup tennis for Australia. And Gil was a cricketer, leg spin bowler and batsman. But So any, any opportunity we had, we would have a football with us, a tennis racket, or a bat and a ball and we were just you know on the front lawn up at the sheep yards be kicking the football and we'd wait for dad to come back in so he would be on the tractor in the ute or doing whatever and it was a bit like last night with paddy cripps wherever you went there was a ball with you um and yeah it's sort of a bit surreal last night gill's last brownlow and i said it's sort of weird we're here right yes it is a bit like we grew up watching the brownlow watching the mcgarry medal thinking they're heroes and then you end up speaking to an extraordinary bloke like paddy gillen doing the votes me doing the interviews, it's like, how we ended up here? But it was great. It was really nice. Yeah, that's phenomenal. All the way from the sheep station. I've seen some vision of, of where you grew up as well when you were walking around with your old man, oh, Angus, yeah. who was a first-class cricketer as well. So he that's was. where You've done your Gil work. got into it. Yeah, done the work, mate. And do, do you and Gil fight over – are you a bit like – do you fight over which one's Andrew Johns and which one's Matty Johns? Or <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to work out who you'd rather be, actually. <laughs> actually, yeah, Joey that's a good Matty. call. That's a good call. Somebody asked me – I, I, I always thought it was a really weird question. Somebody said, oh, are you jealous of Gil? It's like, on what basis? I couldn't be happier for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, just delighted he's done well. And, you know, the next brother down, uh, Banjo, is a, a really, really good barrister. And, he's, you know, and the other is a great farmer. Like, there is no jealousy at all between any of us. I was Gil's best man. He was mine. And then the other two were best men for each other as well. I just don't understand that sibling rivalry thing. Um, funny that you mentioned the Johns brothers. There was a great... Um, mate of ours called Adam Lennon who was the full forward for the Uni Blues and he had known Gillen for a long time and then I um, met him when I came over from Adelaide because Gil did three years of university in Melbourne and we went out a couple of times and he said it's interesting you blokes are like the war brothers Gil and Steve and you're Mark so he called me Wo-Wo because I was much more flamboyant and would get <laughs> out often and Gillen was much more sort of down but that's sort of how it's transpired too he's a CEO and a serious operator mm. but that's, that's from the outside if you actually knew Gillen there's not much serious about him. We talk about the War Brothers a bit on our podcast and we're big Mark War fans. Yeah, so, so this is this is okay. all right. This is fitting. This this I'm more V100. He's more V800. But yeah. we like throwing the willow around. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I, I think also Gillen quite liked the analogy because he was captain and got the best out of himself mm. and the younger brother was probably not quite as disciplined. Yeah. And he's more into horses. So there you go. Correct. So it's all added up. But there you go. So seeing where you grew up, like – Growing up on a farm, were you very hands-on? Did you ever shear the sheep and yeah, get yeah, in we there? Were, and, absolutely. Yeah. Dad would plan the shearing and the lamb marking and the hay carting all around the school holidays. So, so there was four boys. All of you bring a friend home. So suddenly he went from no help to eight, you know, jackaroos effectively. Yeah. And yet we'd be – I remember – so Laura and Gil have been married since 2003. They started seeing each other in 1994. They'd been together forever. And – she was Melbourne girl, grew up going to Melbourne girls' grammar, and her first uh, experience shearing and mulesing and landmarking. It's like, what is going on here? <laughs> but you knew if she could see it, uh, get engaged and put up with it all, it was that was the right one. And Gil and she have been together forever. But I remember her face when we we're landmarking. It's like, what is this? <laughs> this is this is what we do, you know. 
I so, feel like I've seen that in a movie before. Yeah, Girl yeah. from the country, from the city, goes to the country, shears some sheep, and it's uh, yeah. happy ever after. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm assuming that was your first interaction with horses, obviously growing up yeah, on yeah. the farm. How did it all come about in, with your love for racing? Well, mum, on both sides, there's been a huge interest in racing. So my great-grandfather on the McLaughlin side had a horse uh, called Para 2, ran fifth in the Melbourne Cup, and then Para 2 was a stallion produced a horse called White Nose, which won the 1931 Melbourne Cup and beat Farlap. So it's like, that's cool. And then on the other side, my mother's father uh, was a wonderful farmer, but he loved horses, bred, broke, rode all the time. He used to ride around with a saddlebag full of clover and just throw the clover out as he went. Mum would, you know, from a very young age, be mustering with him. He was a cattle farmer down near Dunkeld. And so we always rode and mum... Uh, she rode dressage for Australia and she's ridden all of her life. She's 72 now and just in the last six, eight months it's just only just started slowing down. But we were put on a horse, you know, when we were months old, you know, led around and then we started riding and I think once it's in your blood it's almost impossible to get rid of. And we used to, if I, I Lindsay Park and the Hazers were about 15, 20 minutes away and we would go and w- I would ask mum, could I watch track work before school at Mount Pleasant? And it was about 15 minutes down, 15 minutes back. So you had to leave early. But I would be in the hut watching with Colin Hayes, David Hayes and Pete Hayes. Is that the old Anguston? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it was it was just an incredible operation. And Colin Hayes was a visionary that said, let's get racing out of the stables in the city and bought this wonderful place with great rolling hills. And and so that was, that was sort of how we grew up. And I then uh, – mum would say to us, why, why am I driving you to school? Let's ride the horses. I can get a horse worked and you can come with me. So we would ride – from the stable yard, over the hill, round the back lanes, about 7Ks to the school, saddles off, put them on the hurdles in the sports shed, hang the bridle up, <laughs> go to school, and the horse would be in the elders' stock and station paddock at the back of the school. End of the day, grab the head collar, saddle up, go home. Was, and so, and Gillen was always two years older. He was on a slightly larger horse. He would jump the wire fences. I'd had to get off, open the gate. Go <laughs> I was always late and he was on time. Yeah, that's... Uh that sounds pretty dangerous riding a riding a horse to school. I, I did have to grow up catching public transport in, yeah, yeah. in the northern suburbs of Hobart to and from school. So <laughs> yeah. I, I I raise you that. Yeah, but yeah. He didn't get any knife wounds, but the danger <laughs> yeah. was there. Yeah, exactly. Just a shiv on the bus. That's an idyllic childhood. Like I used to ride my mountain bike to school about five k's and just think I was an absolute weapon. And you're getting on <laughs> yeah. horses. And it doing is, it is, you know what's interesting yeah. about it? So you look, and I was speaking to my mother about this not so long ago. It's like. It's lucky we're alive. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, we were mustering, Gillen and I, at 10 and 8 on horses and bikes and moving sheep five kilometres down a big public road where there used to be cars going at speed. It was just us. I was like, there's no way I'm letting – I've got a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old and a 6-year-old now. There is no way (laughs) I'm letting my kids go on their bikes on the road, let alone be on a motorbike with a mob of sheep. Like, it was just different. We'd feed out at night. It was an old Kingswood ute, three on the tree. Gillen would drive and I'd be in the back throwing the hay out. I reckon we were f- seven and five. Different world though. Yeah, well, you're, so, all, you're all incredibly high achievers and you're likely a product of your own environment yeah. with all that hard work growing up. I, I certainly wasn't doing any of that, that's for sure. Well, Dad was good <laughs> like that, I think, too. It's like if it's light, go and work and help and when it's dark, come back in. And there, we, we were no TV during the week unless it was a news or sport. Yep. It's funny how history repeats itself. There's no TV in our house or iPads other than Friday night, movie night or sport if you want to watch it. So it's sort of, it's, you know, I've only got youngsters at the moment, six, eight and ten, and they listen and they do as, mm. 
we're asking at the moment, but that'll change, no doubt. I'm worried about it, to be honest. I, the whole social media thing terrifies me. Mm, for sure. So let's fast forward. So you've graduated high school. You, mm. you thought you wanted to play football or tennis, but you went on to study commerce at Adelaide University. When you graduated university, did like what was the plan once you got your degree? Did you, did you have a plan? Did you know sort of what field you wanted to go down? Did you want to get into broadcasting media or, or where I'd, did you I'd, want to I'd go? Nev- I'd never thought about the broadcasting or the media. I always So early on I wanted to be an athlete. And then I, in 1989 had my first Rico playing football, then had another Rico in 93, had nine arthroscopes. And so sport was sort of no more. And I think I watched Jerry Maguire um, in about 90, what was that? It might have been uh, sort of uni days. And I thought, well, if I can't play sport, I want to be in the business of sport. And a mate was managing some crows and managers back in 92, 3, 4 weren't really that prevalent. But I ended up being in that sort of sport and business world. And I always wanted to be in business. I would love the entrepreneurialism. And, uh, you know, when, when dad was growing up, he said, I'm not giving you any pocket money. I'm not giving you any money, full stop, work out your own way forward and he was sort of a catch and kill your own guy so he would say to Gillen you know I'll build you a pigsty you get a pig and breed some pigs sell the pigs at the market so he was always teaching us that you know how to work through that and I'm doing that with the kids now I bought them all a cow I said you can breed them you can work out whether you're trading the cows selling the um, offspring or not but work it out and he said to me he said the wool shed it's got 150 years of sheep going in and out of it. Underneath the wool shed, through the grates, all the sheep shit is there. It's good for the garden. Work it out. And he said, your mum's got a lot of old chaff bags in the um, feed room. Work it out. So anyway, I'm underneath the wool shed, putting the sheep shit in the chaff bags, pinning them, driving them down to town to mum's friend, selling them for 10 bucks a bag. So I'm 10 or 11 at this time. You sell 100 bags for $1,000 as a 10-year-old. You'd come back and dad would say, have you paid the driver? So pay the money to Mike. <laughs> this is outrageous. What about petrol? And rent of the truck? <laughs> you left with 700 at the end of the day. So I'm doing that again. You know, and that, that was sort of how we were born and bred, I guess. Work hard, do the work, things will work. And it's like the Brownlow last night. Have a look at the guys on top of the tree last night. They just do more work than anyone else. Fast forward 50 years and, well, not actually, not 50. <laughs> 47. Yeah, sorry, 50 years. I was going to say, though, growing up, you're, you're putting the stuff in the bags and, and earning the money. The kids are, are selling the different stuff these days and earning the money. So the, <laughs> the, the culture's changed a bit around that, hasn't it? Yeah, I was, I was just getting 20 bucks and just pay to pay from uh, an early age. So <laughs> very, very good mindset to be in uh, from, from a young age. We want to talk about broadcasting in general we're going to get into some racing stuff a little bit later which is obviously our podcast and why we're here but we love hearing the backstory of people and and their story and there's a point i guess for every player or athlete in their career where they know that they've you know their first big moment or their first big game as a broadcaster what was your first big moment where you you're like, well, this is this is it. This is my opportunity and and how did it unfold? What was the experience? Well, I'd never done any broadcasting you know, live TV or radio until I was given an opportunity four days out from hosting my own show on a Sunday morning. It was the most sort of odd transition into it. But so go back a little bit. We were farming family and dad used to play polo. It's been well documented. That, you know, but, but that was, we were literally playing in a country, on a country ground in the middle of nowhere. We'd put the goalposts up, put the bins out, mark the grounds, help dad, groom the horses, load the truck, sweep out the truck. You know, it's like... 
Sounds certainly not pretty woman stuff, you know. And then one day, the guy that was supposed to be doing the ground announcing, a guy called Reg Willing, he just wasn't around. I said to Dad, Dad, the final's about to start. Reg isn't around. He said, well, if you can find someone that talks more than you do, get them to do it. Otherwise, you do it. So I started doing the ground announcing. It used to be, oh, could Adelaide go to ground B and play Hexham? Thank you. Turn off the microphone. I was sitting with a mate, Sam Bader. He said, call the game. Because oh, we always love Bruce and Dennis. And it's like, all right, I'll start calling the game. At the end of the game, the guy said, you know, keep going. Okay. Years go by and you keep going, you keep going. So I'm just sitting on the sides of polo grounds when I'm not playing and calling the games. And then I moved to Melbourne and the World Cup is here in 1998 or nine. No, sorry, it was later than that, 2000 and something. And we were playing England. And one of the English um, managers was there and said we should get him to do the game in England this year, Australia playing England. And a mate of mine, Andrew Hines, said, would you do it? I said, of course. So I flew over and I was thinking it'd be three or 4,000 people. Turns out it's at Windsor Polo Club, which is land of the Queen, on the Queen's ground in front of 30,000 people. So I land, this sort of 28, nine-year-old in London, pretty wet and green. They said, are oh, you going to have to do a rehearsal on the Friday for the presentation with Her Majesty tomorrow? So, <laughs> really? <laughs> like, okay. And they said, there's two games. Harry and William are playing the first game. Then there's a long lunch, and then there is Australia versus England, the test match. Like, this is unbelievable. Okay, so we do the Harry and William game, then do the presentation with the Majesty. Then I get sent to a lunch in the Cartier Market. It's a Cartier International in England. And I walk in, it's like, oh, wow. And they say, you're over on this table. And as I'm going to my table, I walk past Piers Brosnan and Kate Blanchett and all these Cartier ambassadors. <laughs> and then I sit down on my table. And remember, I'm from a town of 280 people who have been collecting sheep shit most of my life. <laughs> I sit down and I sit next to a guy and I said, oh, day, Hamish McLaughlin. He said, James Blunt. I said, day, James. <laughs> and this is 2006. I said, what do you do, James? He said, oh, I'm a singer. I said, oh, anything I'd know. He said, do you listen to the radio? I said, I've just landed. I'm number one. <laughs> so, so that was my first experience. And I sort of started – so I was. To, the question is on the back of broadcasting, right? So mm. I start doing that. And then I ring Craig Kelly, who I'm working with at the time at TLA, a sports management group, and I said, Ned – there is so much opportunity over here. There's 30,000 Apollo games. Prince Harry and William have asked me to stay and do a charity day for them in a few weeks. Can I stay? He goes, yeah, yeah, stay. And Ned's an unbelievable guy like that. It's like life is really important. It's short. Get the most out of it. So he said, stay. Come back when you're right. So I set up a few things over there. And I kept going back summer after summer for 2000 and I think it was five, six, and 7. At the end of 2007, Andrew Thompson, the footballer, is it? on holiday in Noosa with his wife Sophie and they're in a swimming pool in Noosa and he's swimming with his young kids and there's a guy in the pool with him. They sort of look at each other and the guy says, do I know you? He said, oh, Andrew Thompson from Melbourne. He said, oh, Lewis Martin from Channel 7. And 2007, Seven had got the football back and he said, oh, what did you think of the football this year? And Andrew said, yeah, no, it was good. It was good. Great to be, you know, I just love watching the footy. He said, any thoughts? He said, I reckon you need a few new fresh faces. And Lewis was sort of taken aback and he said, give me a name. And I'd lived with Andrew Thompson for a long time and a great mate. He said, and he'd been to the polo a lot listening. He said, Hamish McLaughlin. He said, I know Hamish, he works for Ned. And that's how the thought bubble of me being on air was stimulated. It was by Andrew Thompson. And Lewis said, I'll give him a call and did. And then said, come and do a pilot. And I did and I was terrible. I was reading Autocute. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had $7 million of private education spent on me. I can hardly read. I said, can I come back tomorrow and just do a panel? And Lewis said, no, 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 you're not a guy I'd, you know it's like give me one more chance he said no i said i'm coming back tomorrow he said okay 
to Lewis's credit. And I brought back Gillen and Grant Hackett and Andrew Thompson from memory, Nick Holland, and, and we did a panel. We just chatted. And Lewis said, there's something there. And they chatted and talked and then we did a pilot for, because they didn't have the Sunday morning show. They are only a year back into getting the broadcast off nine after nine had had it. And they said, we want to do a Sunday show. Did a few auditions for that. They said, do you want to do your own show? I said, yeah, when would it start? They said, Sunday. I said, I've never even been on air. And they said, you won't better say that on Monday. So get on with it. <laughs> That's, so that's how the broadcasting started. It was like, and then the racing came around and they said, do you know anything about racing? I said, I love the racing. I watch the racing all day, every day. You know, and I used to do track work before school, used to ride to school, went to the US and worked at, uh, in Kentucky at Keeneland for a while. When I went to England, straight to Newmarket and stayed with some mates and they were trainers. So you go, okay, we'll do the racing. Then they said, well, what about the tennis? I said, that's all I used to play as a kid. You know, I used to play in all the nationals, got to the quarterfinals, and you know, I could play. They go, do the tennis as well. So it was just this unbelievable series of events. Guy not turning up at the polo years ago, so I start calling. England comes and plays, can you come over? You know, things go well, let's stay there. Andrew Thompson in a pool with the right guy at the right time. Yeah, it's crazy. I'd, no, so I'd never thought of doing it, but that's where we are. And now, after all these years, finally I'm on the two units. <laughs> <laughs> that, the whole time you, you're going on about that, I'm, and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, like this kid from a small country town, and, and you've you got your mates that are trainers over in Newmarket, and you've gone over to Kentucky, and Andrew Thompson's doing bloody backstroke in a pool up in <laughs> Queensland, and he's dropping your name, and then Lewis is putting you on air. Like, yeah. were all these contacts coming through working with with Craig Kelly or just just networking, Life, going to events and yeah. So so yeah, all right, let's break a few of those down. So Andrew Thompson played amateur football with OMs, and he uh, and Gill used to play against each other and became mates, having beers afterwards. And then when Gillen left Trinity, and and there was a girl called Sophie Gray who was at Trinity. Andrew Thompson started seeing her. Gillen was at Trinity and. That life became, you know, they, they're great mates. And we all end up living together in 1998, Andrew Thompson and I, for maybe three years. So there's the Andrew Thompson connection. I used to work for Craig Kelly because a guy said to me, there's a guy that started up a... I, I was mates with a girl at school called Prue Gray. Her father uh, was a PricewaterhouseCoopers partner and used to manage a few of the crows for... just amuse himself, really. <laughs> so he ended up speaking with Ned because Ned would do the marketing, he'd do the management. I said to him, I really want to get into sport... Uh, sports management, called Craig Kelly. I said, I used to have a poster of him on my wall. He was yeah. the Norwood halfback. I used to idolise him. So I'm in a meeting with Craig Kelly. He gives me a job because that morning the events manager has resigned. He said, what do you know about events? I said, whole life's been an event. Conception, birth, everything. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. So he gives me a job there and then. Yeah, so he good. ends up being MC at my wedding yeah. uh, with Sam Hayes, who's you know Lindsay Park. So th th it is just life continuing. And I think that this is, I say this to the kids. Be curious, ask questions, be interested, and doors will open. But if you're sitting there staring at your phone and not asking questions, where does it go? Nowhere very quickly. So I've got a six-year-old, eight-year-old, ten-year-old. I tell them all, put your hand out, look people in the eye, ask them how they are and follow up with three questions. And the conversation will start. I don't know where it ends up, but at least it's going to go somewhere. And then you've got to be good enough to walk through the door. And if you can get through the door, stay in the room. So your question is, how does it happen? I think it's through being curious and interested and enthusiastic about everything. Yeah, I think it would be safe to say as well, like those people like Craig Kelly and, and Lewis, like they're not taking a chance on someone who's, who's not 
got got that sort of aura or or, or confidence about them in terms of wanting to take a chance themselves as well so yeah good. i, I was watching um the offer which is on paramount which is a um net uh, a, sorry a series around the making of the godfather yeah I've, I've have you watched I've, it I've, I've watched the first episode, and bob, yeah. bob evans who's head of paramount he continues to say throughout the eight or nine eps nothing ever happens for uh, for people who play it safe mm. it's all around taking the risk but you know you think I, I was thinking about how did i end up at newmarket with michael bell who was a derby winning trainer trained motivator in the the Derby. So his former wife, my grandparents, who I was talking about love from the Western District, loved horses, met um, these wonderful Irish couple. They have a daughter called Georgie Livingston who becomes, she's in a gap year. They ring my grandfather. My uh, daughter wants to come to Australia. Great, go and see my daughter, Sylvia McLaughlin, my mum. She comes as a nanny. Years later... I'm going to England in my gap year. I ring and say, where are you? In Newmarket. Come. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it is extraordinary how it all happens. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, we're going to change. What are we doing? Talking racing soon? <laughs> soon. Okay. Soon, yeah. There's, we'll get there. <laughs> there's one we want to talk about, and and it's Kobe Bryant. Kobe. I was, Kobe. I was, I was at Crown with Kobe. Mm. So now yeah. you're at Crown with the units. Yeah. Uh, you interviewed him at Crown. 2019? Yeah, he was. was. He was renowned for his attention to detail yeah. uh, and his work ethic. What, what was that whole Kobe experience like? Can you tell our listeners about that? People often say, you know, through whatever journey I've been on in terms of media, what has been, you know, one of your favourite experiences? And he, I always go to Roger Federer, uh, Oprah, working with Bruce, Kobe. So I got a phone call from... Craig Kelly's group saying, could you interview Kobe Bryant in Melbourne on this day? It's like, it's only like four or five weeks away. If someone pulled out, they said, no, no, it's, it's a bit of a last minute thing, but they just have taken a while to work out who they want as the MC. I said, yeah, yeah, of course. I'm not a massive NBA guy though. And they said, no, but he wants you. I said, what do you mean he wants me? They said, well, the management group was asked to provide a list and a short video of potential MCs. I'm told that they sent three potentials. And Kobe, and this is back to your point, he's got such an unbelievable appetite for doing the work. Back to Patrick Cripps and all those guys, just mm. doing more than anyone else. So he said, well, if I'm going to fly to Australia and do the best job, I need to know that I've got someone who I'm going to be comfortable with. So he looks at these little videos that have been presented and he says, that's the guy. So I get chosen. So I'm curious as to why. So they say, oh, you... What do you need? I said, well, I need to meet Kobe before we go on stage because there's nothing worse than meeting people for the first time and going on stage and I wish we'd had some time together. So they said, no problems. So I think it was like a Wednesday night. I go in on the Tuesday and I walk into – we're in a really nice room here, but it was five times this size. There's four bedrooms and it was dining one, room. It was one level above this one. one <laughs> yeah. So – I walk in and there's sort of agents and publicists and people everywhere and he's sitting on a couch, sitting in that spot as I walk through that door and he sees me come through and he stands up and he's a big presence, like, you know, walks over. He's Hamish? I said, yes, Kobe, it's <laughs> great to have you here. Thanks for coming. It's like, oh, my God. So he sit down. I said, can I just, obviously really excited by this, can I just ask you one question before we get going? I said, why me? He said, oh, we're sort of the same age and you've got three kids. And he said, and he said, he said I've got another one on the way, but 
I saw a video. You can talk to prime ministers, you can talk to Roger, and you can talk to seven-year-olds on air. He said, you can deal with me. So he'd made that decision, but he was completely disarming. Instead of being introduced, he got up and came over. He said, what do you want to talk about tomorrow night? I said, well, I'm thinking sort of a third, 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 a third before your basketball career got going, you know, life with the old man and learning, and then third on your career, and then a third post-career goes, perfect. Where do you want to start? I said, I was thinking sort of, you know, when your old man had finished the NBA, he was playing in Italy, and he'd used to come back in between seasons, and you played that 60-game season as a 10-year-old, and after the last game, your father uh, put his arm around you because you'd had a whole season without scoring, and he said, Kobe, whether you score every game, or not for the whole season. I love you just the same. Kobe sort of paused. He said, how did you know that? I said, I rang a guy that knows you. He said, okay. Then where do you want to go? I said, well, you know, we talk about a bit about your career and maybe I'll show some vision of that game against Utah when you had four air balls you know, in that playoff game and you lost and then went back to the high school gym. Said, and what happened then? I said, well, you rang at three in the morning. You rang the janitor and said, would you open the gym and you put the four cones down and the four shots you missed, you just kept shooting it until uh, high school um, started. He said, how would you know that? I said, I rang another guy. He said, you and I are going to get on really well. He said, I'm going to give you everything I've got because you've clearly done the work. And it was like, for me, it was the highest endorsement of all time because I was so, because I didn't know the NBA and didn't know his career, I just did this sort of three weeks of deep diving and then the more I read about it and the more I became enamoured with him. And the more I fell in love with his work ethic. So he, you know, he was, his alarm goes at four. He would do two hours of training before he would have breakfast with his kids. And then he'd get a helicopter to training so he would minimise travel time so he could spend more time with his family and more time training and more time doing things that mattered rather than sitting in traffic. And it was just like this complete learning experience the whole time. It was like doing an MBA by studying Kobe. And he was great around um, addressing the issue. I said to him, you know, you've been criticised all your life because of your hard taskmaster type attitude. And he said, you know, I'm, I don't shy away from that. I, I, I'm very aware of it. But I've always uh, challenged those people in my life to be better because I, I feel as like I feel as though I challenge myself more than anyone else. I do the work before um, I get up. I know that I've done more work than any other NBA player every week and as a result I think I'll get those results. But he said, I'm not going to sit back and hope that Nick develops his fadeaway three because I need him to know that's not good enough and if he, we're going to win another championship together start addressing that today and, he, and he, this really resonated with me and I often use it but he said Hamish if you're sitting there with spinach in your teeth and we're having dinner I'm going to tell you how you got spinach in your teeth <laughs> I'm not going to sit there for three hours and then let you discover it when you get home yeah. <laughs> fix the spinach and, we'll get, and, and it's like it's, and for me my wife and my kids so my little Miller who's 10 she had a problem the other day and, it, and, you know, it's one of those, she came home and she said, Dad, God girl's are bitchy. I said, what's happening? <laughs> and she told me she had this problem. I said, you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to have a hard conversation tomorrow and address the issue. All the hard conversations get the best outcomes. Mm. She goes, okay. I said, it's going to be really complicated and really difficult for you, but to have the conversation tomorrow. Comes back home after school that day. I said, how'd it go? She goes, hard conversations work, don't they? I said, Kobe taught me that. Yeah, good. 
Well, those I'll just go back to that shortlist. There was three. Um, I'm hearing Dipper and Derek Kicker are pretty flat that they didn't get picked <laughs> over you as well, mate. But. Dipper, Dipper, <laughs> Dipper, I saw Dipper late last night. Dipper was flying. Yeah, <laughs> he's still riding the snap dancer high from the other day. But <laughs> hey, I was I was watching a post game on Channel Seven. I, I reckon this was about six weeks ago. It was it was you, Joe Watson. You know, you get down in the rooms. There's there's three on the panel and. And Tommy Brown charged in and he had his notes and his head was in his notes and, he, and it was bang, just word for word, off the notes, very serious, reading the news. And you put your hand on his shoulder and you said, Tommy, relax, brother, slow down, <laughs> have some fun, yeah. have some fun, take it easy. And obviously that's a bit of an ethos of yours when it comes to presenting and, yeah. and being able to have fun and, and have some lighthearted moments. So off the top of your head, have you got any moments in broadcasting or hosting or anything where, where things have gone awry and you've just had to deal with it in, in a light-hearted manner or, or things that have happened that, are, that have gone a bit off script? Yeah, lots. Yeah. It happens all the time. I mean, so I work with some fabulous producers and you are in their hands a lot. I mean, I, I don't really use rundowns because they change so often and you get a little bit regimented. So I'll have a guy like Glenn Postel or Chris Jones or Joel Stasevich or Ange Edwards in my ear. You walk out night one of the Olympics and you are relying on them to say, after you've spoken to Nick, um, let's look at Dave's highlights from yesterday. So it's like, finish up. Okay, let's have a look at Dave from yesterday, you know, silver medal, first Olympics, da, da, da. and then she'll say in my ear, or he will say in my ear, uh, when you're ready, bring on Bruce and talk through the men's hundred. So you know, let's get to Bruce, the greatest of all time. And then at the end of that, you got three more minutes and then get to a break. You know? But sometimes the comms will break down. Like, I've had nothing in my ear for a couple of minutes. We're mm. out here. So then you're sort of looking for a floor manager and it's like, so it's happening all the time. Uh, that's racing last week. Great show. Great show. Great show. It's going to win so many more awards. <laughs> um, so I was doing an interview with Costa Horanis, who owns Flightline. She's going, I haven't been wrapped up here at all. In fact, then I was thinking to myself, I actually haven't heard his voice for the whole three um, segments so far. The whole thing was unplugged because it was a new producer. I'm thinking I won't, I won't, I won't, you know, because if I'm if I'm we're talking away and I feel the camera's off me, I'll I'll look at the, I'll sort of look at the camera and say, you know, what do you want me to do next? Thinking, I don't know him very well. Um, end of the third segment, I said, Dave, you there? And nothing was happening. I said, I can't hear Dave. And the guy comes, he's haven't been plugged in for the whole three seconds. <laughs> was he trying to give you the wind up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so it happens all the time. The one to back to your philosophy with mm. the Tommy Brown stuff, and I will say to you know, whether it's Abby Jelmy who's terrific or Beck last night. If you if you look last night, so they say, please welcome your host Beck Madden and Hamish McLaughlin. Beck walks from that side. I walk from this side. Put it, and I say to her, let's just have fun. Let's have a lot of fun as we're walking to the microphone because I can you know her first Brownlow and. The worst thing that can happen isn't so bad. Mm. You know, I, I, Ange Cunningham, a mate of mine, had um, MND and passed away. Neil Danaher is going through it. I've had my daughter in um, Royal Children's Emergency and been told 10% chance she dies in hospital, 80% chance brain damage for life, 10% chance unscathed. It's like there is nothing to worry about in life, mm. often. We all overthink everything. Yeah. So, Tom, how are you? Yeah, good game of footy. You know what I mean? And, and, and he's a great man, but it's like he gets into that news cycle. It's like talk. You know, and, and the other thing, if you watch that post-match show, for example, it's pretty loose. And I will sometimes I'll just walk off set and go and grab a player, leave Darcy and Joe talking to the other parts. Like, 
come back. It's like, it's just for me, it's much better TV. Yeah, yeah. It's just fun and natural, and and I'm not good at the auto cue rigid thing. Yeah, so it's just not for me. It's just not as easy. Yeah, there was one time where um, I spoke. We spoke before a game. It was 2021 Anzac Day, and I was privileged enough to be involved umpiring, and you were hosting and emceeing the uh, the day. And I remember going. She was like, "Oh, how are you, Hamish?" And, and you go to me, "I'm absolutely shitting myself because <laughs> yeah. this is such a special day, and you can only stuff this one up in terms of emceeing." And I was like, "Yeah, fair enough." And I. I was spraying my bounces left, right, and centre, and I had the first one that day. I was like, "You're right. You can only stuff this up." But <laughs> that, that 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 is the most uh, significant day for me as a broadcaster. So Brownlow Medal, same thing. What can go wrong, really? Like it's not. But that day for me, there's some weight on me that I feel more so than any other day because of what the Anzacs have done mm-hmm. and the significance of the day. It's not anything to do with the football. It's for me. It's all around making sure that everything is right mm-hmm. for those that have done so much. That 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 silence. Oh, that ceremony is just unbelievable. There's well, nothing like it. If people say, "What are your favorite? What do you love most at seven? I said, "Anzac Day." And there's, there's and there's bits and pieces. Like there's not one sport or one moment, but that that silence every year. You can hear a, you can hear the seagulls. Mm. You can hear a baby cry. You can hear a guy cough, and you're looking down the line at these. 23 on either side plus a coach now and these faces but you can see these young men waiting to play football and I in my mind I'm looking at these young men that went off to battle and didn't come home it's like this is insane mm. you know, what we're respecting here so why I get so anxious about that is it's only my voice I'll be looking at the rundown and I'm thinking to myself private education kick in here don't make this up. Don't make this up. Seven mils worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seven mils you know worth it. And so when I say to you, no, that's Friday night footy, Saturday night footy, Brownlow, Olympics, whatever, I don't get, I get excited, but I don't get like I do on Anzac Day, yep. which is a genuine um, apprehension that I won't do justice to those that need to be respected. So this is a horse racing podcast. We haven't by the spoken. Way. Yeah. So, so you. This is actually unusable. Most of this, <laughs> no, by the way. Not. Hey, but it's timeless. Yeah. It's, timeless. <laughs> it's got no shelf life. Yeah. So, you've you've done a lot of broadcasting across different sports, as we've touched on. But horse racing, for you, what what are some of your highlights in terms of broadcasting in in horse racing, in particular? Winx's third Cox Plate. So I, when Bruce is hosting, I would always. Uh, end up behind the barriers for the big races when we're both on the same track. And he would come down and say, you know, um, what are you seeing? And I just remember so distinctly when Winks was trying to equal Kingston Town's third. I was down there behind the barriers and you leave all the mayhem of the members and the mounting yard and the marquees on the inside and you walk down the straight and people are off their melon by this time. It's like yelling and screaming. Play horses. <laughs> and Daryl's in his 19 horses. And I got down there and I was like, it's just quiet. And I was looking around and I was seeing all the horses that were sort of sweating up and at that point the jockeys are just little sips of water and the guys that you know, for the horses that needed are walking them around. There's a towel. And I just remember looking over at Huey Bowman and she did not have any sweat at all anywhere. She was on a loose rein. Ears were pricked. I was thinking, look at that. So Huey Bowman from Dunny Doo is on 
the greatest horse that we've seen in a long time, arguably ever. The whole of the world is watching. You know that every TV set of all of the interested horse racing countries are watching. All the horses are sweating up, sort of starting to kick out, and she's just walking around on a loose rein. I'm thinking, she has no idea how many people are hoping she wins. Mm. And then I was thinking, well, she does, and she will. And who knew she would? It was just one of these out-of-body experiences where it's like, how am I getting to see all this? And there's only literally eight or nine people down there. There's the barrier attendants, a couple of guys on the camera. Ponytail man, Pony- our mate. Yeah. yeah. What do I, I Eli. Eli. So yeah, Eli, Eli is all, he's yeah. always there. Yeah. yeah. And he gets them in, mate. For me, <laughs> for whatever reason it was, it was just this beautiful moment where there's a country kid on top of this extraordinary animal. The world is watching. And Bruce says, what are you seeing? I'm seeing the most extraordinary calm. So that, that for me, I think, is my favourite horse racing moment where I'm in the broadcast scenario. The most um, surreal is probably Michelle Payne and 100 to 1, Prince of Pantence, country trainer, taking and beating the world. Ethereal in a funny way too with Sheila Laxon and Scotty Seymour. It's like everyone's trying to win and the macadamia farmer and Sheila and this unbelievable mare doing the double, I think, was outstanding. In terms of getting kicked off race courses, a 13-year-old at Balaclava for underage bettings, obviously. <laughs> Actually, that's that, a good segue. That's <laughs> a perfect segue because we always ask our guests on our Two Units podcast, like, are they a punter? And yeah. we love, and clearly you are, if 13, you're spending. Mum gave me the money. So she was a she was a, no, no, um, earn, a trainer. Didn't you earn your money through the cows you were given from a young age? Well, that, I was, mum I gave I you the cows. Selling manure. <laughs> so... My mother had her own a trainer's license. We would strap for mum at the races and do a bit of track work for her and she had it just as an interest because she's on the farm. We're at Balaclava and she said, I think I think this horse will run a place today. Just go and have five each way for yourself. So I go into the mounting yard with a great <laughs> mate of mine, Brad Govan, and we're at school together. And we're in the um, bedding ring and I'm having five each way. I turn around and just walk straight into a policeman's chest. <laughs> I said, sorry. He goes, no, no, stay there. <laughs> I said, I'm just going to go watch this race. He said, how old are you? I said, I'm oh, 13. And Brad Govan, who's, mate, goes, no, it's eight, eight, 19. <laughs> we looked 13. I was late to puberty. <laughs> and he goes, uh, do you have a bet? I said, yeah, each way, Bagero. Mum reckons it can win. He goes, you know you're illegally underage betting. I said, we're doing what? It's like, oh, here we go. <laughs> so we go into the steward's room, pockets out, everything gets... Um, I said, I don't know what they're thinking we're doing. There's 11 people on the Imagine track. getting dragged into the steward's That's room when you're 13. I'm thinking, are we going to jail? Like, you know when you, you go, oh, oh, I'm yeah. going to jail for life. So anyway, he says, where's your mother? I said, oh, she's about to watch her horse run. The, you know. I said, can we speak to her after the race, which you won't want to be interrupted now. He goes, are you joking? I said, no, no. Well, let's go then. She's up there. So we walk up to Bella Clava, walk up into the stand, and mum's sitting next to Pete Hayes. Bobby Robinson, who was the form guy for Lindsay Park, they're all there. Policeman says, is this your son? And mum goes, yeah, sit down, sit down. He goes, I've just found him underage betting. I said, fine, I, I gave him the $10. Please sit down. <laughs> He's trying to watch the race. <laughs> and the policeman says, what is more important to you, your horse or your son? And she said, right now, the horse by many lengths. Sit down. <laughs> so, so he sits down, the horse runs third, and mum says, what do you want me to do? Sorry, what, to the policeman, what do you want me to do? And he says, uh, he needs to be escorted off the course. And she says, take him with you. <laughs> mum goes down, hoses the horse. I'm, I'm, I'm taken off the track. 
The policeman keeps the ticket. <laughs> oh, yeah. no. Oh, so he let, oh, what a rat. Yeah. <laughs> it's only a rat if you're not involved. Yeah. Well, the question I was also going to follow up with, what's your biggest win? Clearly that isn't because you've had the winnings confiscated. So do you have any Do you have any big wins or big nearly moments as a punter? We've all sort of, we all sort of have them. Yeah. I, I, I bet too big too often for too long and I've calmed down. But I don't even know if I should tell this story. Probably should. I had a very big win on a first four in uh, Darwin. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a bit to unpack there. <laughs> so as it is, yeah. So James, you know James Jordan, yeah. Mm. So great mate of my little brothers, and have become a great mate of all of ours. He was a sort of a Darwin specialist because he went and worked for Sporting Bet up there. And I remember ringing him. It was a Monday. Darwin Cup's always a Monday. Mm. I was cleaning up the house. And I was cleaning my study and I, t- I was bored. So I flick on the – come straight up on Sky Racing 1. I texted James Jordan. I said, anything at the cup today? He ignores me. So I ring him, screens me, ring again. <laughs> After the 87th call, he goes, what do you want, you're desperate? <laughs> I said, is there anything to back today? He said, no, and hangs up. So I ring him straight back. I said, there's got to be something. He said, okay. In race six, there is a $1.30 favourite of Gary Clark's. It's too short. There's only one other horse that can win, and it's 13 bucks. but one of them's going to win, but they should both be about $3. I said, okay. He said, there's one other horse that can run second if anything goes wrong with those two, and it's 20 bucks. He said, so just have the Quinella and hope Gary Clark's falls apart. So, okay. Hang up. So I'm thinking, well, if I'm having the Quinella, <laughs> there's go. probably more to do here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have... The two horses that can win, Gary Clark dollar um, thirty and the twelve dollar shot to win. Then I have the three of them to run second. Then I have field field for the first four. And I remember Miller, who's the ten year old who I was telling you about. She at this point is about three, not even school, so she's sitting it. And uh, I have her on my lap, and uh, they jump, and Gary Clark's horse knuckles. And almost dislodges the jockey. And as you know in Darwin, if you miss a start on that sort of good luck, <laughs> yeah, it's gone. Like, okay, we've got a f- couple of issues now. We've only got one to win. And the horse that we want to run second is just jumped to the start and leading by about four. And, I, and Miller says to me, what do we want to win? I said, see the horse running fourth now. We've got to get it to win in the red. She goes, okay, go the red. I said, we want the horse that's <laughs> winning now to run second. She goes, okay. So at about the 300... The horse that's winning is still going brilliantly, but the horse in red, can't remember any of the names, is starting to make red. They're, they're clearly going to run the Quinella. I just need the right order. About 100 to go. You can see what's happening. It's like, this is actually going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> About the 50, it's like, unless this horse bleeds or runs through the running rail, it's going to win, and the horse that we need to run second is going to run second. They go across the line, and then a wall of horses go across the line for third and fourth. All of them just go across the line together. And then Sky Racing 1 just cuts to a dog race. It's yeah, like, classic. <laughs> so I ring James Jordan. I said, have you got any of the exotics for that race? He said, you get the Quinella? I said, yeah. <laughs> What's the first four pay? And he some goes, dessert. <laughs> he goes, well, what do you mean first four? I said, you could have one bet today and it was the Quinella. I said, what are the first four pay? <laughs> he goes, did you have the first four? I said, I did. And he said, which state have you had it in? 
I said, I don't know, just hang on. <laughs> <laughs> so you know how they sort of, you weren't quite sure. I said, yeah. yeah. New South Wales, New South Wales, New South Wales, New South Wales. He goes, oh, interesting. <laughs> he said, one of the first fours paid nine grand. The other first fours paid 16,000. The others paid 26,500. I said, which paid 26,500? <laughs> New South Wales. I said, just hang on. I'm gonna ring. I'm gonna hang on. Just hang on. Just hang on. Just hang on. So I go back to my phone, just going, just going through the numbers. Like, yeah, the twelve from the six. To the and then I was looking at it in my, um, I was looking in my phone. I thought I'd had two hundred and fifty dollars on it as a first four, and it was sixty eight percent. I've had two and a half thousand dollars on the first four, six point eight times. <laughs> and then I'm thinking that can't be right. It's like so I'm double checking. And then I'm just, you know when you're hitting refresh? To oh, see yeah. <laughs> and then I check my account. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my So God. then I say to my wife, who was downstairs, we're having this spring cleaning day. I said, Soph. She says, yeah. I said, we've had some luck in Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> I said, we've got the first four. She goes, what is that? She's not, you know, she, yeah, she's yeah, never yeah. had a bet in her life. Yeah. yeah. I said, don't worry. She said, do you have a win? I said, we won. Ugh. Which is a number I don't even want to repeat. Just, <laughs> so you up for the date? <laughs> <laughs> that's outstanding. Oh, that's phenomenal. That's man. so good. Well, I always hear those stories, and I'm like, when's it gonna be me that accidentally wins that much? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's usually like twenty five dollars. Oh, I've accidentally had two hundred and fifty. Yeah. But I'll give you. Yeah, I'll give you I'll, one. I appreciate other. your extra zero. I was completely doing my ass one Saturday, and James Jordan, who I think is one of the best judges. Oh, we yeah, we agree. do as well. Yeah, he's just outstanding. And he says, um, you should have a bet tomorrow. I said, you sure? And he knew my volumes. And he said, have a really good bet. I said, why is that? He said, because there's a horse that should be an, on my mark. It's $2.50 favourite. It's $11 and two thirty. It's an eight-horse field. There is no way it's missing a place. I said, how sure are you? He said, really sure and do it fast. So I'm thinking, there is no way he's ringing me while he's working to give me the steer unless he is really sure. Mm. So I think, what's the biggest bet I've ever had in my life? Is today the day? I feel like today's the day. You know, when you, <laughs> and also you can when, justify when, anything in your yeah, mind too when it comes also, to putting. Also, when you're down, it's like, I actually need to have the bet. And mm. if I'm getting the very best information, you know, as opposed to just plucking something out of Perth, which I've been known to do and it gets worse <laughs> for you, he's telling me tomorrow at Bordertown, there is a horse that should be $2.50 that's $11 and... It's like, okay, it's bedtime. That's where the big stings happen too as well. So I, I, I back the horse and have a number on it that still makes me feel a little um, uneasy. And then I go and look at the form. Oh, my God. It's run last and last <laughs> in the first two starts, and that's had a spell. I said, yeah, wait for him to get off air. I said, Are we, have I got the right horse? He goes, what horse have you backed? I said, Lancaster Sound. He goes, yeah, right horse. I said, it is legless. Because it is in the wet. Loves border town. I said, I love it. Yeah. I said, what do you mean? Sound at home. I said, um, it's a disaster, this thing. He goes, no, it's not. He said, it, it trialed and it was never posted. And I've seen the trial. On a dry ground, it's a different horse. It'll jump to the lead and it'll win. I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, I didn't <laughs> tell him how much. How much. So I couldn't really sleep. <laughs> I woke up early, checked the scratching still in. And by this stage, it was about five bucks. Got the right price. I said to Soph, I'm just, you know, how many, 74 minutes, 73 minutes till it jumps. Oh, 
we've all been 72 there. minutes. <laughs> we've all been there. So then it five, about five minutes out, I, I thought, this is going to be uncomfortable either way. Mm. I need to go for a walk here. So we live on 100 acres. and So, it's a, so if I'm just going to go and check the um, horses, I go for a walk. I position on a, um, <laughs> position on a gate post. <laughs> I'm sitting there. You're obviously with Telstra. <laughs> yeah. That's not a Vodafone job at all. <laughs> so I watch the and, and you know when you I get uncomfortable. You know you get in that position. You and are. You, and yeah. you, and you're you, sweating. It's fatal. You're sweating talking about. Yeah. It. The number that the, the upside was so I didn't. Uh, so horse jumps, goes to the lead. It's like too too early. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then on the turn, it's like there is nothing travelling behind this horse at all, and this—it's just this. And then you go, breakdown. <laughs> yeah. Or they will have forgotten to put the lead in the. So, so there's all these <laughs> things going through here. And then about the hundred, it's like it's actually going away from them. Wins by a four or five. Anyway, do I? Was it the right horse? There's anything you're going through your count again. Yeah, yeah. And then you're just waiting out, and I was yelling. Then you're waiting out there for a correct weight, just in the paddock by yourself. Waiting, protest, something happened. Not a lot of trust emanating from you here in terms of. Have you have you punted? <laughs> in your life? Have you punted? Nothing. Nothing goes on behind yeah. the scenes. And Weighing so, in light would just be the. Yeah. Oh, don't tell me you weighed in light. I, I, I'll, I'll give you the top thirty ways to lose on the punt. I've experienced all of them. <laughs> so so it wins, and then I ring James Jordan. I said that was incredible, wasn't it? He goes, yeah. He said, did you have the thousand each way? <laughs> he said, "How much did you have?" I said, "More." And I sent him a screenshot, and he was broadcasting that day. He goes, "I could not have broadcast if I knew that was happening." Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and he said, "Don't ever do that again." Said, yeah. You told me <laughs> that it was impossible to miss a place. He goes, Mate, it's at Border Town. <laughs> anyway, it was. Uh, they're the two days that have been. Comp- so you combine those two and it adds up to an incredible amount of money. I'm still well behind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, talking about being well behind no matter how much you get involved, that's usually ownership. We've we've got a couple of horses and even when they win races, then you get the training fees and you're like, oh, sick. We only buy tried <laughs> horses too. Yeah. It's an unwinnable game. Yeah. Uh, are you... Oh, the owners of Winks are behind. <laughs> <laughs> are you um, in on any horses at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the one that is genuinely exciting, I think, is a horse. Um, so Campbell Brown, who you guys would have, um, or you would have umpired. Yep. So he's got an amazing ability to get enthusiastic about anything. He's just got <laughs> such a great demeanour. He said, Hammer, <laughs> sending you an invoice. I said, what for? He said, doesn't matter, pay it. <laughs> <laughs> so an invoice turns up um, for a Sacred Falls cult, which has been called Sacred Oath. And he put a great group of people together and Warney was one of the owners. And it's with David Van Dyke. It's taken a while. This isn't the one that ran through the uh, yeah the barrier. Welcome to punting. Yeah. Mm. So Warney passes away and the next it, so its first start was unbelievable mm. and it ran. This this is extraordinary. You talk about racing and how the punting gods work and how So it runs and David Van Dyke says, if it doesn't win, it'll be beaten by a good horse first up. These two horses just fight out um, the finish and a horse called A Call From Heaven beats Warney's horse in a bobbing finish. It then wins its next couple, I think, A Call From Heaven and third is Different Suburb. So we think, well, we, we win next. Uh, Warney passes away and Brownie and I meet, come to the casino to watch with a couple of owners. I think it's a dollar fifty mm. or something. 
Ryan Maloney's on. Jumps. What Warney, uh, What number did Warney wear? 23. 23 strides in. The horse dislodges the jockey. Gets hit from the outside, put into the running rail, dislodges the jockey. What are the chances? 23 strides. <laughs> yeah. It's awful oh, luck. Top Sport is bringing you something that's better than the best and better than the rest. It's best of the best multis. Your top odds are guaranteed. Just place a best of the best multi across any Saturday Metro meeting to score yourself the top fluck or top dividend from the three national totes on each leg. How's that for top dollar? Download the app today and bet your way. Visit topsport.com.au. Top Sport. Feel the excitement. Best of the best not available WA races. Gamble responsibly. Well, some pretty good uh, punting stories so far. You've actually exceeded, you've exceeded my expectations, Hey, I've disappointed of, myself. Yeah. <laughs> and my mum and my dad. Yeah. And, uh, your family's proud, mate. I'm proud of you. The units I are proud. I honestly don't think they are. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you, uh, you previously worked on Friday morning RSN Central, actually. You had a- The great man, Dino. You had a segment with Dino. Do you want the, do you want the good news or the bad news? Break the bad stuff early. Well- it's not in such good hands that said that segment anymore because the two units have got that segment now. We're in there on Friday morning and we're constantly reminded, uh, you know, the big the big shoes that we're filling and uh, big shoes. Yeah, but the, uh, the they definitely. I don't know what's happened with the budget there. So it's, they haven't. <laughs> well, we were getting ten grand a Friday. What are you guys getting? Yeah, yeah well, our our invoices <laughs> have got dust on them. At the <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to say, it was a complete love job at home. <laughs> Hey, uh, mate, to round out the to round out the podcast today. I was trying to find you a screenshot of um, Dale and Carp. <laughs> <laughs> you can send. Oh, I, I forgot we were being filmed. That wasn't disinterest. I was trying to find. You, yeah. you can send that a bit later, and we'll put it up on our socials. Yeah. That, that screenshot. Um, Who wants a loan? Yeah. Before we wind up today, we love. The Auskick interviews, mm. right? They're fantastic. You seem to somehow get a lot and then not so much out of the subject that you're interviewing. It's one, a real mixed one, bag. One kid didn't say anything yeah. for two minutes and 48 seconds. <laughs> but, you still, but you still managed to nail it. Yeah. It's, uh, Do you know that that is – I won't mention the child's name, but he did not speak at all for two minutes and 48. And Joel Starsevich, the producer who was in my ear, said, this is a train wreck. <laughs> Keep it going as long as you can. <laughs> it's like After that. about a minute, he said, he's not going to say anything, is he? I said, he said, so we're going to drop the Richo interview. You know, all the way to the bounce. <laughs> See how long you can get out of him. It's like the South Australian trainer, Ken Sweeney, where yeah, 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 yeah. he's getting something out of him. He's just given nothing. Makes Bart Cummings you know, <laughs> yeah. look like a real talker. Yeah. So... Now, Dave, he's he's the premier tipster at two units, and he's a bit nervous. He's got a big spring carnival coming up. So what I thought to round out the show yeah. was you could interview Dave yeah. in the format of, a, like of an Oz kick, like uh, as an Oz kicker heading towards spring. So yeah. let, let's take it away. So, Dave, uh, you been to the MCG before? I have, mate. I'm a regular. I'm a big pies man. Where have you flown in from? Roval, South East Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> and have you uh, been playing Oz Kick for long? Yeah, Vic Kick in my day. So I'm a, I'm a Vic Kick, uh, long time aficionado since I was four. What sort of football are you? Defender, midfielder? Midfielder. Sentiment. Most possessions in a game? Uh, 60. Most goals? 14. Compare yourself to an AFL player? Uh, bucks. How old are you, Dave? 33. If you'd said eight, it would have been a tricky next question. But do you, punt, do, you, do you punt a lot? I do. Biggest bet you've ever had? 
Uh, oh, it'd be. I'm not, I'm not massive in terms of my outlays. It'd be okay, a biggest few, collect. A few grand. <laughs> a few grand would be my biggest outlay. Biggest collect. Uh, twelve grand. Did the two grand outlay produce more or less than two grand? More. Nice. Favorite player of all time? Nathan Buckley. Favorite jockey? Jamie Carr. If you had to win the Melbourne Cup with a horse that had Melbourne Cup potential, which trainer did you send it to? Peter Moody. Why do you like moods? Uh, I like his down-to-earth attitude and, and I like his horsemanship in terms of his approach. And I like Kat Coleman too. Okay. Uh, Spring Carnival, one horse you're really looking forward to seeing run? Uh, can I say two? Zaki versus Animo Cox play. I can't wait for them to clash. How did Animo pull up from the weekend? Three out of five lane, but apparently since then he's bounced back and, and signs are looking good. If you win the $5,000, how will you spend it? Uh, on on my top sport account. Gamble <laughs> <laughs> <Sponsoring>. responsibly. <laughs> Brilliant. Very good. Well, Hamish, thanks so much for... We know, it's, you know, the morning after the Brownlow medal, you must be absolutely rooted. So mm. we really appreciate um, having us long to your penthouse, sharing some incredible anecdotes about your your life your upbringing and your punting especially and i really uh, hope mum doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> i'll send it to her we'll be right um, so i've got this room for tonight but i'm going home so you guys have this and <laughs> keep inviting people in i love it mate pleasure um, yeah well, well done uh, it's been fun thanks hamish appreciate it hey there, baby. I could use just